0: John
1: Taylor of House magazine. Thanks for joining us and
0: welcome to the Reptile Living Room, featuring John Taylor of Her House Magazine and James Tintle with Cold-Blooded Publishing. The Reptile Living Room is brought to you by Herp House Magazine, the premier digital magazine for the reptile hobbyist. And by Cold-Blooded Publishing, your exclusive reptile media publishing company. Now, here are John and James in the Reptile Living Room. So I guess we're live, and tonight we have with us uh, Ray Morgan, uh, the Venom Interviews. Uh, Ray is coming to us live from Costa Rica. He used to live in L.A., then he decided for some reason to move to Costa Rica, and we never heard from him since until tonight when he joined the show. Welcome, Ray. Uh, Good to know you're back with us and uh, still pursuing the Venom pursuits. How's Costa Rica treating you, sir?
2: It is fantastic. Uh, we're just coming out of the uh, the windy season into the rainy season, so we're ni- uh, very happy to get some some moisture and green things up down here.
0: Oh, moisture! Yes, that's uh, that's the stuff that shows up after we uh, float the icebergs down the river here in Canada.
2: Yeah, the only mm-hmm. ice anywhere near here is in my freezer. It's we don't uh, water doesn't freeze outside. That's unnatural. Wow,
0: <laughs> I'm so jealous.
2: <sighs> Come on, um, I gotta,
0: <laughs> thanks, I will. Uh, speaking of jealousy, our uh, our next guest was actually hated by our co-host already within within the green room in less than five minutes because she is unfortunately a Patriots fan, uh, hailing from Halifax uh, or something with Christine of CK Sambos, uh, Rear Kane Sambos, welcome to the show tonight. I apologize for my co-host, you know, not being a Patriots
3: fan. You hey, just can't them all. Hey, not a problem. I'm I'm used to being hated wherever I go for being a Pats fan.
0: <laughs> and he's holding up some type of mug in the screen. I don't know what he's doing. Yankees fan, New York fan. There we oh. go. There it is.
3: Oh. Oh,
0: it's
2: Patriots. I
0: thought Pats
2: fan was Patsies.
0: <laughs>
3: oh, I'm getting hit from all sides. <laughs> what the
0: heck? Hey, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. So, and we, oh, we got some Browns. So. Oh, man, this is horrible. <laughs> See, this is why I don't watch sports, you know? People just, they just get way out of control about their sports. You guys got curling up there, don't you? Yes, we have curling! I mean, what better sport is there to represent, you know, a hobby or hucking stones with each other than curling?
2: <laughs> that is not a sport. <laughs> I thought they were what just sweeping the running?
4: ice for the hockey players. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh man! Oh, and there's my co-host, James. James, welcome to the show, sir. How are you tonight?
4: I'm doing pretty good. Busy uh, as usual. Awesome. Busy as usual. Trying to make sure this show is all put together right.
0: Yeah, you know, I and you know, I just gotta say, I I really like to give shout out to my crew and these guys. They're just incredible. They really pulled together this week. And against all odds, make the (laughs) show happen and uh, come together. Chad, James, you guys are awesome. Thank you very much. I'll go
4: ahead and do a bow.
0: All right,
2: cool.
4: All right. All right, so we got everybody in here. Let's go ahead and start with the news. Oh, boy, which one are we going to start off with? Let's start off with a good one here. Let's start off with the cricket story. Eat a cricket, save the world. All right, how many of our guests and hosts and, and producers here have eaten crickets? I know I have.
3: I have. No. No, nope, not me.
4: Well, guess what? I say that I have. Guess what? Here in the United States, we may be eating a lot more crickets. According to this story, they are now making cricket- flour to make pancakes and bread and all kinds of stuff. The whole major point of this story, and you can catch the story in the links on our Google Plus page. Chad's going to post them there for us. I guess uh, raising crickets leaves less carbon footprint than cows, So, and crickets have more protein than cows, so they want more cricket farmers to provide us Americans with proteins, Unbelievable story. Check it out. Anybody have anything to say about that story? Anybody else read it? Uh, our audience. Anybody? Go ahead and po- go ahead and post a comment in our Google Plus page or Facebook page or over there on YouTube if you're viewing us over there. Um, pretty. Yeah. There we go. We got crickets in the studio tonight. So here we go. We got another pretty good story. Um, Actually, Chad found this one online, and it's actually in my own backyard, really. It talks about gopher tortoises. Um, group aims to rescue reptiles buried alive by construction. I guess what's happening is um, before uh, some of the laws were passed in 2007 uh, with gopher tortoises, some of the construction companies already had um, were grandfathered in to not remove them from the construction site. So this group actually goes in and relocates the gopher tortoises. I think it's a really cool story. Um, So go ahead and check that out. Apparently since 2006 they have uh, rescued more than 4,000 gopher tortoises. It's It's a pretty big number. What do you guys think?
0: That's awesome.
4: Yep, yep. So. And I guess there's, um, according to the story, there's 216 projects, construction projects, um, with over 3,500 tortoises listed in them. So there's like another 3,500 tortoises that they can save out of these 216 uh, grandfathered-in construction projects. So a pretty good story.
0: That is awesome.
4: Now comes the horrible story. This picture actually made me sick to my stomach when I saw it. Considering John is writing a Euromastix book and uh, Cold-Blooded Publishing is going to publish it this year. (laughs) This picture actually made me sick to my stomach. (laughs) Look at the truckload of Euromastix that these guys shot. Unbelievable. What are they doing? Anybody have a clue what they did with these things? They shot them for fun. Unbelievable. (laughs) What do you think? What do you think about that, John?
0: You know, it, I don't know, because actually after I read um, the new Broghammer book on ball pythons, he talks about working over there and showing people that you know if you do a conservation project with these animals, you can ship them to the United States and make all kinds of money. You don't have to shoot them and eat them anymore. You can ship them off to dumb people in the United States that enjoy keeping them as pets yeah and there you go it's conservation
4: (laughs) what about you christine i heard you wanted to chime in on that one what's your thoughts
3: i just don't get that i mean that's just absolutely disgusting i mean how can you shoot a living animal for fun and that many of them
4: yeah that's a whole heck of a lot that's a whole truckload Apparently, some of the quotes in, the, in this story is, Islam is against all forms of excess and abuses, and that is exactly what these two men did, a commenta- uh, comment- commentator uh, writing under frustrated moniker. Uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable story. And we got one. Uh, h- here's a actual O's story, and it's kind of funny. Before I even read this story, I don't even see a picture of a gharial. I see a picture of an alligator. They couldn't even get the picture right in this story. Typical news, right? Right, guys? Typical news. Yep.
2: Yep. So anyway... At least it wasn't a picture of a ball (laughs) python. See, that's surprising.
4: (laughs) It could have been. It could have been. That's for sure. I guess uh, um, they actually were able to release 1.5. Uh, gharials back into the wild with uh, satellite transmitters. Um, it's one, one step forward to re- replacing the ones that have disappeared over time. I guess uh, less than 35 of them live in Nepal now at, at this time, so uh, it, it's a step in the right direction. Um, I, I'm just not too thrilled on the people that released the story and putting uh, that picture up there. True. All right, so the last one, last news story, rare reptiles to benefit from new forest wildlife link. And here we go. Here's a picture of it. And apparently in this story, they're actually joining – this is for all our U.K. people. I guess they're joining two national parks in between and making a brand-new forest, and it's going to save a bunch of um, different reptile-threatened species like the smooth snake – um, the dart warbler and sand lizard. So it's uh, a pretty interesting story. You guys can catch all these links on our Google Plus page. Our YouTube page uh, will have the links up there in the description. Once we're done with the show, I'll get them up there. And uh, Facebook page as well. So if you're interested, you can check out all those news stories. If our audience comes up, you guys see a news story you want us to cover, think it's really interesting, go ahead and post it on our Reptile Living Room Facebook fan page. It would be great to see hear from all you people out there watching <laughs> us. Um, I couldn't believe the tremendous support we've had for this show. Uh, <laughs> no what good. do you think, John?
0: It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. You know, uh, We had talked about it early on in the beginning about reviving the Reptile Living Room and we didn't feel comfortable enough with what we, what we had in mind, and then we started discovering some of the newer technologies and stuff that became available uh, via some of the research you had done. And next thing you know, we're doing a soft launch last Thursday, and then here we are with, you know, Ray Morgan and Christine. And, you know, it's Reptile Living Room 2.0. It's the only interactive reptile living uh, reptile show available, to my knowledge. And it's just awesome.
4: <laughs> Great. All right. All right, Christine, you are up. It is our hobbyist spotlight. But before, actually, let me before we get into that, let me go over a few things for our audience. Some of you may be interested in knowing where you can actually interact with us. Um, you can interact with us on our Google Plus page, our event page that I post the link to. You can post comments below. Say hi, everybody that's viewing. If you're viewing us on, on Google Plus, just go in the comment section, type in hi. We'd love to hear from you. And let me pull it up here. So if you're viewing us, this is typically what you're going to see. You're going to watch us in the window here. You can see our trailers before the show. Just underneath there is where the comment section is so you can post your comments there that's on G plus guys um, our recorded version will be here as well you can catch us on uh, G plus recorded after the show is done so if you have any questions please contact us on reptile living room Facebook fan page or G plus or even go to the reptile living and leave a comment underneath one we'll try to help you guys out alright so if you're watching us on Facebook First of all, if you're on our Facebook fan page, Reptile Living Room, you got to click the View Us Live button. And that will drive you to this page we see here. Um, Comment section is actually below. And watch us here is up there. If you're watching us on mobile, Facebook mobile, you would have to scroll all the way down to the bottom to post your comments. So you can actually do it on Facebook mobile as well. Um... I'm working on some technology so we can actually bring those comments up but right now I am following all those comments so if you're watching this on Facebook mobile or Facebook PC leave a comment say hi love to hear from you guys and one last one where you can catch us live is YouTube so let's go ahead and go to YouTube YouTube if you're not familiar with it you'll see it up the top and you can make it large screen you can actually make it full screen if you want to watch us full screen Um, and comments go down below we'll be able to see all those comments as well don't forget to subscribe that way you get all the updates recorded versions will be up as well so you'll be good to go there every time we post something up there Um, so that will take care of anybody if you have any questions feel free to leave us uh, comments in any of those Facebook, YouTube or G+. Alright guys, Christine. Yeah. So, so you breed sand boas. Yes. And what got you interested in um, breeding sandboas or just keeping snakes in general?
3: Honestly I didn't start keeping snakes of my own until 10 years ago but thanks to my father I was exposed to them probably since before I could walk. He had his own collection of eighty or more different species and he taught me that they were not to be feared, they were to be respected like any other animal. I basically grew up thinking that reptiles were a normal pet in my household. Like some people think cats and dogs are normal pets. I grew up thinking snakes, lizards, turtles were, were normal for, for me.
4: I don't know about anybody else. That was pretty normal for myself.
0: <laughs> no doubt. Well, no, I didn't get into keeping until way later in life, actually, for myself.
4: What about you, Ray? When did you start um, keeping?
2: I had I had kind of the typical story. I started at about seven years old with a garter snake, and uh, I think by the time I was 10, I had about uh, 200 snakes in the garage plus plus. Uh, an equal number of rodents that I bred to feed them—it was awful, <laughs> it was, and wonderful. It was—it uh, it was fragrant, but it was—it was fantastic. <laughs> fragrant.
4: Yeah, that's a good term for it. All right, all right, Christine. So you started it ten years ago. Why did you decide specifically Samboas and not um, any other? colubrid species, or even ball pythons, or Burmese, or anything like that?
3: Honestly, I started keeping snakes ten years ago. I didn't start breeding until three years ago. Um, A friend of my father's was downsizing his collection, only wanted to keep his ball pythons, and he offered me his gravid female paradox albino for for free. I wasn't going to take her at the time. I'm like, you know what, I have enough snakes to begin with, I really don't want to add any more to my collection, but like a woman, I changed my mind, and uh, I had him. <laughs> it, off, it over. I don't think
4: you. I don't think you'll hear anything out of the peanut gallery here.
3: I know. Wow.
1: But um. Whoa.
3: I had my uh, my father's friend brought the snake over to my house so I could take a look at her, and I'm like I was hooked then and there. I took her. She was actually gravid at the time. Um, when she gave birth, I actually offered the litter back to her original owner because <laughs> technically I didn't produce that litter, so I wanted him to basically have what he produced, but he said, no, you keep them. You get started on your own your own uh, little breeding adventure, if you want, want to call it that, and from then on, it was just I was hooked on them. Wow.
4: So, now, do you keep all different kinds? Do you keep just uh, normal phenotypes, or do you keep a, uh, amelanistics, anery, snows? Um, do you have all, all the different morphs? Or
3: I have paradox albinos. I have an anory, I have a couple of snows. I have a couple of albinos, um, a few... Normal 100% het albino paradox um, stripes an anery stripe uh, canary didoma a nuclear meltdown double wow. head snow Jeez. and I think that just about covers covers it wow the, and a rough scale sand boa how many snakes do you have <laughs> Uh, right now I would say about twenty four, twenty five.
0: Wow, that's crazy.
4: That's a decent collection. No
0: kidding.
4: <laughs> that is definitely a decent collection. <clears throat> so, are do you, are you producing Sambo's this year,
3: or? Yes. Uh, I have. I should have two letters hitting the ground in probably about three weeks and then another litter hopefully in July.
4: Great, great. And they can have upwards of how many babies?
3: Typical normal first litter is 13, like between 13 and 15, but each success succession of litters can go up to 19, 20, even up to 30 or 40.
4: Holy moly. Wow, out of yeah. one female?
3: Out of one female, yeah.
4: And I thought thirty eggs from a corn snake was a big clutch. I couldn't imagine having thirty li- going opening a tub and seeing thirty more snakes in a tub. That's got to be I like actually, Christmas.
3: I actually had one of my uh, fellow breeders had a litter last year of forty. So that was pre- t- that topped every record known. Wow! For
4: now, for our audience, maybe some of them you know don't keep colubrids. What's the basic care on Samboas? Is it typical colubrid? You know, eighty, eighty-five, and, and you know, seventy-five degree cool end.
3: I mean, I keep them at with the hot spot of between ninety-two and ninety-five, um, a cool end around the low eighties. Um, they're actually really, really easy to keep. I mean, they if you want a snake that's visible. Sandbows may not be the one for you, because they do remain hidden under the the bedding for most of the time, unless it's feeding day, and then you'll see their little faces poke up out of the aspen.
4: Right. Right. Now, do they feed exclusively on rodents, even as babies, or is, is there some... Oh, so they do. They feed exclusively on rodents, then.
3: There is a very bad misconception that has been told by another breeder that it's okay to feed your sand boa crickets. That is... I don't know where that came from. I don't know where this person got that information from, but sand boas are not uh, one to eat insects. They start off on pinky mice and then they gradually move up to, if the females get large enough, to small rats.
4: Wow, small rats.
3: yeah I have I have a female that will take small rats.
4: Whoa that's a big that's a big sand bone. <laughs> I didn't think they got that big yeah.
3: Females can get between 30 and 36 inches and 30, okay. 36 happened to be the, the biggest've I've known for a female. Males top out between 14 and 18 inches.
4: Wow! Wow! So they're sexually dimorphic.
3: Oh yeah. You get. I mean, some breeders like to keep their males on the smaller side, like below 100 grams. I have a few males that are cl- closing in on the 200 gram mark, and they still are fantastic breeders for forming.
4: Oh, good. Um, That's insane. Ray, you can go ahead and ask that question, if you want.
2: I'll see if I've got the bandwidth for it. Um, Christine, I was curious about, for the, uh, the species that are common in the pet trade, do, do, what countries are they sourced from?
3: Um, they haven't exported, I know, for a good many years. Um, they were coming from Tanzania, um, Kenya. Those are the two that I know of. But they stopped exporting. Sandbow is many many years ago so there's no new blood coming into this country
2: uh, I guess that's good and good and bad yeah true
0: hey Christine do you work with any of the Russian ones or the, the rough scales or anything or
3: I have one rough scale um, he's been quite the pain to get switched over to frozen thawed. So I've decided he's going to be my only rough scale. I'm just concentrating solely on my Kenyans. Okay.
4: Great. Do you keep any other species just besides Kenyans?
3: I do have one normal male ball python, a gray-banded king, and a Brazilian rainbow boa.
4: Great, great. Alright, do, uh, do you have any handy to show off for uh, our viewers?
3: I do. Um, I don't know how well they're going to come up, but I will show you what I have. This is actually, if you'll hold still, my Annery female. She is approximately two years old, so she should be ready to breed in probably another season. I, uh, I did not produce her I got her from a plus serpent and she has the best feeding response out of any of my sand boas I mean she rivals my gray banded king snake on on a feeding response
4: Wow they they're pretty heavy bodied snakes then they don't grow to a long size they stay pretty heavy bodied it looks like
3: Yeah they um they don't grow long. They, the females definitely are hefty animals if they uh, they can reach above a thousand grams when they get older. Um, this one right here is probably around 220 right now so she still has a ways to go before I'll feel, I feel confident enough to put a male in with her.
4: So let's talk about Um For the people that don't know what anathuristic means, it actually means the lack of red pigment. Um, unfortunately, it, it's used very commonly in the colubrid world and a lot of the antheristic animals that we see are actually hypo where they lack most of the red pigment, but not all of it. Now, on those antheristics, does it lack all the red pigment and change where the red pigment may be to absolute pure white?
3: She has they have no red pigment whatsoever.
4: So I mean, it is, so it is a true anetheristic animal it, then. It is. Great.
3: Great. I have a few more to show off. If you can see this is if yeah, she'll this one will not hold still for me to get a good shot of her. She is my female snow. She is a little over a year, year old, so she's quite a ways away from breeding. But um, she does she will not hold still. I don't know if it's because of eyesight issues with the the red the ruby red eyes, but she's just a she's a spaz. I mean, she but she is a great snake. Again, I did not produce her. I picked her up at a local Reptile Expo a year ago. Um, again, hey. all, Oh, sorry.
4: Oh, you can put her... If you raise her up in the screen, we can actually see a little bit. By the looks of it, it looks like she's... Uh, looks kind of like white and yellow.
3: Yeah, she is white and like a tannish yellow. Uh, Snows actually can be more of a, <laughs> a pink tint to them as well. But she's basically the uh, what a typical snow will look like.
4: And a snow for our audience that doesn't know, a snow is actually an amelanistic, where it lacks all black coloration, and an antheristic gene combined, where it lacks all the red, and all it leaves is the whites and the yellows and the light pinks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right.
3: Do we have one more, Christine? I do. I'm actually going to show you one that I produced myself. It's one of my paradox albino males. The only yeah. one that is not in shed at the moment.
4: Okay, so let, let's explain to um, the audience what a paradox albino actually is.
3: Yes, please. <laughs> this is actually the only true paradox animal in the snake world that has been proven to be genetic. It is a simple recessive gene. Basically if you breed a visual to a normal a normal Kenyan, you'll get 100% pet albino paradox and then if you breed the visual back to 100% het, you'll get a split litter of visuals and pets.
4: Okay, so the paradox gene is actually attached to the amelanistic gene then?
3: Actually, albinos and paradox albinos are not compatible. If you breed a regular albino and a paradox albino, you'll get all normal looking offspring that are double het for both albino and the paradox gene.
4: Wow, that's interesting. So the paradox <laughs> albino is actually a totally different strain Yes. Than the regular amelanistics that we see.
3: That is correct.
4: I learn something new every day. So, basically, paradox, what does it leave? It leaves splotches of just regular black coloration on the animal. So it'll be just a typical amel where it lacks all the black, except the paradox means there's little blotches of black along the animal, correct?
3: Correct. And I wish I could show you the female I have. (laughs) The daughter of my original female. She was actually born not only with the normal black paradox markings, but she was also born with a few blood red markings on her. And I wish I could show you her, but she's gravid at the moment, so I don't like to disturb her, but um, I'm trying to see if I can duplicate her by breeding her father back to her. See if I can produce more like her.
4: Right. Well, very good. So, if anybody's interested in boas, how can they contact you, Christine?
3: Okay, you can find me on Facebook, either underneath my page CK Boas or my personal page, which is under Christine Kilroy, or my email address is ckilroy28 at comcast.net. I check my emails every day, so if, you have, if anyone has any questions, they can contact me there.
4: Chad, you got all that information that we can post it um, down below in the comment section after it's done?
2: Absolutely. If she can uh, put her email in the chat, that'd be great.
4: All right. So if anybody's interested in some Sambos, contact Christine. She's got mm-hmm. a, a great group. I'm glad to have her on the show. Um If you have any questions, if there's anybody out there have any questions about Sambos, keeping Sambos, please feel free to uh, put it in the comment section on G+, Facebook, or um, YouTube. John, you got anything else for Christine, Ray, Chad? Anybody else have any
2: questions for Christine? Thank you. It was uh, interesting.
0: I learned a lot. <laughs> I didn't know there was that many damn sandbows. I was like, damn.
3: <laughs> there, there is a lot more that I didn't even mention. I mean, there are so many new morphs coming out. I mean, there's so many I don't have in my collection that I would love to have, but I just don't have the the funds for them at the moment. So.
0: Yeah,
4: I know that feeling. <laughs> hey, Chad, you got you got ghosts flying behind you.
0: Yeah. Hey, I would like to say that um, I've seen a lot of Christine's animals, and they're phenomenal. She doesn't produce a lot, but what she does produce is top-notch. It's quality. So if you're going to get looking to get one, I suggest get one from her. Very
2: awesome.
4: good. Very good. All right, John. So we got the hobbyist spotlight. Each week, we're going to actually take hobbyists and small-time breeders. John and I are very particular on promoting the heart and soul of our hobby. And the heart and soul of our hobby are are the smaller people, the people that only keep small collections and and love the animals and do everything they possibly can for this hobby. Um, Right, John?
0: Yes, sir, very much so. You know, I like supporting the hobby um, in – multiple different ways. You know, we have a lot of guest posts over on the Reptile uh, reptileapartment.com, reptileapartmentcanada.com. Uh, a lot of our guests over there can post uh, various articles, various topics uh, as far as captive care and what have you. Uh, then you have Cold-Blooded Publishing as well with the new Honduran book and the New Year Masks book. How many books are you up to now?
4: Well, we have, we released the Guide to Hunter and snakes last August at the Daytona Expo.
0: Right. And,
4: and, excuse me, we're working on your Euromastics book. will hopefully be released by the Daytona show this year. Exactly. And then we have possibly three to four other books that will be released by the end of the year. So we're going to be quite busy here in the next few months.
0: Nice. Very cool. So, now, as far as the... Uh the new media is concerned. Uh, what's your take on the digital media output as far as reptiles are concerned? The
4: digital media output? Wow. Well, yeah.
0: You know, you cinematography, all the new digital effects, all that stuff.
4: Well, here's what I kind of look at. I kind of look at the history of where we sat. Um many years ago on information and content about these animals and about these creatures. I mean, I was born in the 70s, so it's kind of hard for me to actually look anything prior to that time frame. But by reading what what I've seen and heard from other people is, back in those days, you had to pick up a book. That's the only way you were actually going to learn or actually grab the animal out of your backyard or if you went hunting and found it. The only time you actually learned about these animals, um, mm-hmm. then we can kind of fast forward to you know where the hobby actually grew, thanks to many many of the old timers that we've seen. You know, back in the eighties and early nineties was actually where I actually saw a big increase of the hobby and the amount of people that were in there, and you could talk on the phone and exchange letters, actual letters, stamped envelopes with addresses <laughs> on them.
0: You know, so, you know postal service. Right,
4: right. And we had to release some amazing magazines back then. I remember, as you know, back in the early '90s, as a younger kid in my teens, and waiting at the mailbox for the new uh, Reptiles magazine or the new Reptiles and Amphibians uh, magazine, the little yeah. compact one. Oh, it was amazing! I would sit there, and it was only released every other month. So. Uh, it was great. It was a great time back then, and I learned a lot from those. You
0: no, know, and that's something that was kind of interesting that I know, kind of a behind the scenes kind of thing uh, about the one of our guests tonight. You know, our very special guest, uh, Ray Morgan from the Venom Interviews. Uh, that was one section that kind of got covered in the Venom Interviews. Uh, first of all, Ray, welcome to the show once again. Um, such a great pleasure to have you back on the Reptile Living Room. Uh, the original Thank interview you so much. Awesome, but this one is just, you know, this is actual audience interaction, so now we can have this whole event that we wanted to have originally. Now, I'm looking forward to it. It's fun. So talk to us. How did you originally get into, you know, what? how did the Venom interviews come about? How did you get into snakes in the first place or reptiles at all?
2: Oh, wow. Well, uh, I it, it bit me as a kid, <laughs> so, so to speak, um, uh, when I was, I guess, about, I think, maybe six or seven years old and it went to mom and dad and said, yeah, I really, 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 really want a snake. And they're like, you're out of your mind. That's just never <laughs> going to happen. And, and uh, so I did, you know, I did my research and I lobbied hard for a year. And then I was finally allowed to get my first snake. And then that was kind of the, uh, the floodgates opened. After that, and I just ended up uh, keeping them all my life. And in kind of, it started out with I think the way it normally starts out is you you take what's available, and then right. once I discovered places that imported animals for zoos, then I got what in the you know the late 70s were were some weird animals like ball pythons. Nobody had ball pythons, and um, I had uh, <laughs> things yeah. like 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 white-lip pythons and. And all kinds of weird, weird stuff, um, and then so kind of just stuck with me all my life. It never really went away. But what kicked off the the Venom Interviews project is just this just horrible frustration with the state of the media and what, uh, how the both the animals and, and people who work with them, either professionally or in the private sector, how they're portrayed, is just it's just abysmal. Um, and I, it really struck me that there's there's got to be a more interesting way to do this. And if you if you uh, got rid of the you know all the nonsense and the hype and the manufactured uh, you know pseudo realism, that there was still some really interesting stories there. So then it was just a matter of well, you know, within the world of herpetology, what to focus on. And I'd originally thought well maybe the big constrictor problem in South Florida would be an interesting thing, and then as I started to do that, that had kind of, there, was other, there were other people focusing on that, so I kind of stepped back and said, well, what if, you know, what if we looked at them animals, and and then uh, the idea hit me that, well, you know, what about the people who work with these, that you have your hosts that are, you know, that get all the screen time, but the people who spend their, you know, their, whole, their, their days, day in and day out, working with the animals, they, they aren't very visible. And so I thought that that would be a very interesting thing, uh, a very interesting thing to, uh, an interesting story to tell. And so what the project has grown into is something of a collective biography. It's kind of, um, it starts at, uh, with the question you just asked me is, you know, how, how did it start? And yeah. uh, there's some surprising <laughs> similarity there. Uh, and then uh, how people kind of turned pro, and how do they, how do they took, uh, how do they take that that productive obsession and turn it into an occupation which is not an easy thing to do it's a you know, it's a weird class of animals and usually the the people who work with them are 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 not altogether normal <laughs> and and some, some of them you know some people figure out a way to to make a living at it and uh, that is interesting because it's not very common and so that's yeah. uh, that's the biography. It goes through all their, their careers and the work that they do, and then it uh, the film closes up with kind of a retrospective and some advice to the next generation. It's, uh, it's pretty cool.
0: You know, and that was one of the things that, you know, I'm definitely guilty as charged. You know, I love working with the Venomous stuff. I'm definitely not altogether there. as, <laughs> And I just haven't gone over to that cliffside yet of how to make money out of it yet. I just... I'm not that confident yet, you know, because I mean, you talked to these people firsthand, and you know, and this is the thing about you, uh, Ray, that really impressed the heck out of me, was you actually drove cross country, literally, <laughs> you know, packed up a yeah. bunch of cameras and just drove, and you know, called these people ahead of time, and said, "Hey, I'm gonna be here on this date. I'm gonna film you doing this, this, and this. Is that okay?"
2: Yeah, sure. Well, you know, not everybody said sure. Um, there were yeah. some interesting stories about that. Uh, for one thing, the, uh, I, I wish I had something as large and comfortable as a van. I actually did it in an Audi TT, which was, oh my um, God. yeah, to, to cram that full of stuff, to live on the road for two months and, you know, drive a 15,000-mile circuit around the U.S. and Canada, it was probably pretty ill-advised, but um, I, I was amazed that that early on in the project where I, I started to get people who were receptive to the idea. And what seemed to resonate is the fact that this was not for Animal Planet, and it was not for any uh, sensationalist aims, and it was not a money-driven project <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, but they but they were interested in the idea that it was kind of, uh, it, it, really the, it, the purpose of the project is to take to task people who are producing that kind of media, and I didn't know at the time. But there was a, a network of people calling each other. And, who who is this this person that's calling me? What does he? You know, is he is he is he trustworthy? Is he? You know, what do you think about his motives? And so they're having these conversations, which I didn't know about until later, and these. These phone calls are kind of preceding me along each step as I went up through, you know, headed north from Los Angeles up through California and made my way to Idaho. And I think by the time I got to about Utah or something, all these phone calls were going on. And um, by the time I got, I guess by the time I was at uh, uh, Jim and Kristen's place, we um, pretty well talked to each other and decided, well, let's let's give this guy a uh, let's give this guy an audience and. And see what happens. Um, And so the the one thing, the one objection that I had to overcome, where people didn't say, "Yeah, sure," was uh, probably half the people I talked to said, "You know, this this isn't for Animal Planet, is it?" That was uh, that was one of the first questions I was I was asked, and it was, you know, with a lot of suspicion. Right. Right. Um, And so getting over that was was definitely not easy. And I think there were people who were still a little bit... I, I think that nervousness was probably not completely put away until I started releasing the first clips from the film, and uh, you could see that, yes, this this really is what the project is about. It really is about these professionals and professions in this weird field.
0: Right, right. right. Now, talking about sensationalist uh, media and... You know, and really reaching back in history, um, my first exposure to uh, live reptiles was literally Ray Harryhausen. And, you know, taped uh, iguana spines, you know, taped to, you know, some lizard or whatever, you know, with Sinbad and things like that. But I knew that that was fake. And it's like, but now we're producing films like Anaconda today, and then these are getting huge, massive amounts of people following them, and they're actually believing that
2: this is accurate portrayal of an animal. Yeah, well, you, if you how have, you uh, if you, how do you compete with it? Well, it's the truth is that it, it's really hard, um, and it's hard for both on the, pro, the producer's side and it's hard on the audience side. So on the producer's side, you're competing with, with eye candy. You're competing with things that, do, that doesn't take a lot of brain cells to get engaged with. Um, on the audience side, it takes more effort to sit through something that's educational. And uh, you know it's easier to be entertained. And if you already have a bias, if you already have a, a phobia of these animals, or if you're already one of the people who's convinced that cottonmouths will chase you around, um, then those things uh, those things resonate with you and they reinforce your existing beliefs so you know you can you can say the same thing with you know what about news programs or other you know, belief systems Well, what resonates with people is what uh, what reinforces what they have already decided is real and so that is probably the biggest uh, the biggest challenge that a project like this has to, uh, you know, to, to gain a large audience is that it has a very strong appeal. But it has uh, a very strong appeal within this community of serious you know, serious enthusiasts and, and professional people. That doesn't make for an enormous audience. Um, however, I did have one experience that was really a lot of fun. And it completely surprised me. I had a presentation out at the Desert Institute in Joshua Tree, um, I guess about six or eight months ago. And I was pretty nervous about it, because the audience was just people who were members of the Institute. They were not, uh, you know, these are people who have a, a, a serious interest in nature and the environment and wildlife in general, but they are not hurt people. And I managed to do this this presentation, about an hour-long presentation on the project. And it was probably the one of the best audiences I had were these non-herpers. And that was, it completely surprised me, but it was just very, very satisfying to see. And that gave me a little bit more hope that maybe the audience for the project is broader than than I might have imagined. I hope that's true.
0: Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Let's hope it's much broader than imagined. Now, as far as, you know, the competition with, you know... uh, not going after the lowest common denominator. How would, how do we go about, without giving away your film, how do we go about reaching that giant audience that we really wanna, you know, get it out to, at the same time, not, you know, selling you short? I mean, is there any that clever marketing? Yeah, that
2: really, thing or? That, that's the, that's really the $64,000 question. Um, one of the things I've noticed in, you know, both in this field and in other businesses is that markets, whether those markets are for, you know, consumer products or in this case for for media products, tastes move by evolution and not revolution. So in most cases it's very difficult to come in and completely yank the rug out from under an entire way of doing things and say that, that doesn't work anymore, that's no good, this is good, this is the way we're going to do it now. And if you approach it that way, it's usually nothing but crickets. It's uh, just deafening silence. Um, But I think to the degree that people uh, can produce material that's interesting and make it accessible, and not geek out so much that non-herpers are lost in the process. Um, I mean, if you did nothing but, um, you know, you did nothing but you know, a, a a video presentation of a university lecture with nothing but Latin names and black and white diagrams, y- you would lose the audience in ninety seconds. They, the majority of you know, unless you paid a lot of money for grad school, you're not going to sit through that. Yes. Um, but but <laughs> I think if you can make it, if you can make it appealing, um, you know, if you can if you can add a lot of interesting visual information. Um, so w- one of my my favorite things, and it's it's tongue in cheek and it's purely comedic. But if you've seen the Zay uh, Frank's uh, videos that he does, you know true facts about the mantis or true facts about the sea pig, and and it's absolutely hilarious. Uh, and but he's talking about some pretty interesting things about some you know some pretty obscure animals. He did one on chameleons, and and it's it's phenomenal to to watch this and to, to see millions of views on these because it's a, a funny creative way to present uh, you know to present something and that obviously came from somebody who's you know he said he's an exec at BuzzFeed he's not even a biologist but he does these phenomenal videos because it's presented in a creative way I think we can probably take a cue from that and yeah. if we can make it um, if we can make it appealing Without making it dumb, I I think it's I think it's possible to do that. But it's uh, you know again, again, it's not easy for the producer and it's not easy for the audience. You have to make it easy for the audience.
0: Right, for sure. No, I know James had some uh, questions as well, didn't you, James? For Ray. Yeah, for Ray.
4: I talked to Ray for almost an hour <laughs> yesterday, and I could probably talk to Ray for another three days. And, and he's such a bright guy, and has so much to, to offer our hobby and uh, after looking at uh, some of his trailers for Venom interviews Ray I have to say that is some amazing work and, and I'm definitely looking forward to it um, some great oh, great work thank there. you so much Um that,
2: uh, that that makes it worth it thank you
4: I mean I, I actually shared if everybody's following me on Facebook I actually shared one of my favorite ones and that goes to the private sector that that Ray did for the trailer, I thought it was really good, Ray. Um, talk about the private sector. Let me ask you a question: What is your basic feeling on the private sector actually keeping venomous snakes?
2: That that's a it's a loaded question, but I'll give you the the short answer first. I think that uh, if we're talking about people being permitted to keep venomous animals? I think the answer to that for me is, is very straightforward. If it is, uh, if you're basing legislative decisions on data and not emotion, then it's very easy. Very, very, very few people uh, are, are killed from captive venomous snakes. Uh, one of the stats that I saw a couple of days ago from a very reliable source said that f- uh, for exotic venomous we have about three fatalities per decade, so it's it's rare enough. So exotic venomous; these are things like uh, your your bitus, your co- your cobras, uh, mambas, things like that. Um, so we only get about three of those per decade. And in in terms of envenomation, the the stats are in the private sector; they're not a lot different uh, you know, per head. Than they are in the professional sector. Um, they're they're both fairly low. So if you're talking about people being allowed to do it, the data just isn't there to support prohibition. Um, so you you look at cities like you know New York City, uh, for example, and a number of states that just have blanket bans on on keeping uh, venomous animals. You know the the data just it just isn't there to support that. It's a it's a fear-based approach to legislation, whether people are uh, in fear of the animals or legislators are in fear of not getting reelected if they don't respond to those kinds of complaints. So that's that's one half of the answer, um, whether they should be allowed to. The other half is whether it can be done safely. Well, the data there is reasonably clear. Yeah, you, it can be done safely. Uh, but as we, we said kind of half-jokingly earlier that not everybody who does this is... Um, you know, is, is altogether healthy. And there's, there's people who are attracted to uh, dangerous animals because they're dangerous. And it, it seems like that subset of keepers probably have a lot higher risk of having accidents. And they have a lot higher uh, risk of ending up in the news. And when they end up in the news, they have a lot higher probability of looking really bad. If a, You know, a professional gets bitten. Uh, they end up on the news, and they can talk articulately about what happened. And then if you have some guy who looks like he was just pulled off an episode of Cops and has Gaboon Vipers loose in the bedroom, that's a different perception. And it's very hard to separate those two. Right. I'm not sure if that answers your question. That was a, it sure does. Of along it it
4: of- sure does, and I think that um, a lot of us in the Herb world agree with that, that – if it's permitted, um, I, I think the private sector should. I mean, look at it. Look at the advances the private sector has come up with, and, and you actually show that in a video um, trailer clip about the private sector. I, I noticed that a lot of the guys that you interviewed actually said they trust the private sector more so than than some of the actual um, scientific sector or government sector of, of the animals. Or
2: you know, what was what was really interesting is I had started out the project, once I decided that I wanted to cover the professional and scientific aspects of, uh, of the field, um, I had kind of said, well, you know, the private sector is probably a, that's a big thing all by itself. Let's save that for some time down the road. Well, it pretty quickly became clear that the two can't be separated very cleanly. Um, virtually all of the people who work with the animals professionally also keep them or work with them in some capacity privately. And as, as you said and as as it shows in the clip, there's a great deal of important work that's done in the private sector. Um, so drawing a, a, a sharp distinction between you know these guys are professionals and they get paid to do this and therefore they should have special permission and that they command a higher level of respect. You know, there's a lot of people in, in the, the private sector that command just as much respect um, and look at the, the clip there of uh, Dr. Mark Seward. He does uh, he, uh, biology, reproductive biology research primarily with Gila monsters there in Colorado. And he, he has probably the most technologically advanced breeding setup I've ever seen. And there's a quick tour of it there uh, on, the, on the film. But what he's invested in that and what he's able to learn from that is phenomenal. He's uh, you know, from what he's learned in the private sector, he's one of the, you know, handful of people on the planet who knows the most about heloderma reproductive biology, and that comes from the private sector. In um, that I mentioned Lawrence Klobber. He was from the private sector. Um, the All of the people who run Venom Labs, they all came from the private sector. Uh, so it, it's an important field, and if you prohibit people's ability to do that, you're potentially cutting off you know, not just enthusiasts, um, not just cutting off connection to, you know, to a part of the natural world, but you're cutting off next generation of potential scientists and you know, people who are going to do work in the field. Um, so I definitely don't think that being overly restrictive is in our long-term best interest. I think it's a bad idea.
0: For sure. And uh, just now, our, actually, our special guest just joined us, right? Your uh, friend and colleague, Mr. Mike Clarkson. Mike, how are you?
1: Doing good, guys. Doing good. I've never used this software before, so you guys will have to bear with me. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so how's
0: uh, how's the industry treating you these days?
1: Uh, busy spring is a uh, busy season so I'm still at the office and when I'm done here I will still be working for a while so. this never ends for you huh <laughs> uh, you know it, it, it it's tough to explain to people that um, when you're when you're working in this business you're working it's, 40 hours isn't a thing um, there's no nine to five you know if 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 you get home by 5, you got fired, and, and that's what happened. <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> so, um, and, you know, this is the time of season I'm constantly on shoots, and everyone's like, man, you're in Louisiana, then you're in Texas. Like, yeah, that's not exactly voluntary. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, one network says, oh, we want a pile of this, we want a pile of that, and you're just jumping all over the place, and it's usually on two days' notice, you know, and... Um, you just you, you keep everything packed everything ready and yeah this time of year that the industry's crazy now in in wintertime I'll be complaining I'm not doing anything at all so you know there, there's an <laughs> ebb and flow to it
0: exactly feast or famine now we were talking to uh, Ray about uh, venomous keeping in the private sector as well as um, just the representation of herpetology or even herpeticulture in the mass media today um, being dumbed down and edited to the lowest, you know, lowest common denominator, basically, where they actually believe that films like Anaconda, that this this could actually be real and happen to someone in South America, and then you have YouTube videos, you know, showing people with large snakes and being eaten and what have you, and it's like, with anybody that can produce video, it's like anything is possible. So how do we deem, you know, where do we draw the line anymore? It's like, who do we believe? Who do we not believe?
1: I mean, I think to a certain extent that's happening in all sectors of uh, science and education in general. I mean, yes, it's a huge thing in uh, herpetology and uh, herpetoculture, but I think it's also transcending into other areas. You're seeing people believe stuff just at random, that, that Samsung was paid uh, by Apple and pennies, and people see that and read it. You basically got to... <laughs> Anything you read, you gotta go on Snopes and double check. And uh, yeah, you know, I think I think it's rough in a science area because it's so hard when people don't know the area where the lines are drawn. Where sometimes if it's just a crazy rumor like pennies, they're like, oh, okay, well that can't be real. With uh, especially reptiles and amphibians, where there's that mystique and mystery surrounding them, I think people just believe it all. You know, hairy frog sounds less believable than some of the stuff that isn't true. So, you know, it's tough, but I I think uh, there are still a few networks out there trying to present real science, and the rest, I think, you have to realize are entertainment, and we have to get people out there and go, hey, look, you know, that's not factual. It's tough. It's a a battle.
0: Exactly. Brady, what would be your take on, you know, on network media today as far as representation of herpetoculture and herpetology?
2: Well, uh, you know, I, I think I've largely given up on it, um, and I, I hate to be defeatist, but it's 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 really tough. Um, but when you hear occasional stories where you, you somebody's rational about something, it's really refreshing. There was a, a story that popped up, I think, uh, a week or two ago about a guy who was bitten by a cottonmouth down in, I think it was down in Louisiana, Mike, and he stepped over a log, got nailed by this thing, and... You know, he, he acknowledged, you know, like, look, I was in the snake's territory, I hope it, it lives long and, and thrives. And that just parts my hair because you don't hear that very often. Um, but to answer your question, I I hate to say that I've given up on it, but I, there's just for the most part there's better places to spend your you know, spend your hours.
0: Exactly. Exactly. James, what are your thoughts?
4: I, I think we're all on the same page when it comes to uh, herps in, in, in the media spotlight. Um, it, it's tough to teach people not to be afraid of them, and it's even more tough to uh, tell them that what half of what they see in the media isn't even real. Um, perfect one, I mean, look at the news story that popped out about the gharials, and they had an American alligator picture attached to the story. Uh, you know, people don't know the difference, and it's tough to battle. Like Mike was saying, it's tough to battle uh, the difference between what truth is and, and what the media wants everybody to pertain everything to be. So it, it's, it's something that all of us in the hobby and all of us that love reptiles and amphibians and need to really band together and, and get that education out. And, and videos like the Venom interviews, I mean, I, I can't wait to see it beginning to end, and I'll probably watch it three or four times to really get the whole gist of it, because it just even in the trailers, it's so informative and tells me so much that we can do as a hobby. I
1: think, wh- I think one advantage we have right now is that um, a lot of people are turning to the internet for their media. And and that's a huge advantage to us because we don't need the network's ear. We don't need to sell why this is going to cause ratings. All we have to do is publish it ourselves like this and people can view it. And I think that opens the door for a bigger audience than we had before because it's it's tough to sell a network person on a wonky show that's going to have a positive spin. They're like, well, why will people want to watch that? Whereas if a few of us just start making this positive media and putting it out there and and word of mouth and doing grassroots educational efforts, I think that'll help um, really get the word out, taking advantage of this... Uh, Media right here because a lot of networks are looking at the internet as how are we going to start integrating because that's the next step, you know Just as DVDs are fading into uh, internet downloads and movies, so will television eventually become part of the internet?
2: You know, actually, oh go ahead, Rick, please Oh, Mike, I was going to ask, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I'm curious about your thoughts on Not just how accessible different media is on the consumption side, but how increasingly easy it is to produce Good media. I mean, there's people that have YouTube shows, and there's people that that are able to do, you know, production quality for a thousand dollars that ago would have cost a hundred thousand oh, yeah. dollars. What do you think I mean, about? That?
1: I think it's funny. Um, like eight years ago, to get a small damage-proof camera into a situation, you'd have like a fifty-pound acrylic housing, and <laughs> It would be too heavy to get on an airplane, so you'd have to have it break apart in five different sections and carry it on an airplane in two separate pieces of luggage. And now you can fit that same thing in your pocket. It's a GoPro. You can buy it at Best Buy. That's that, since I've been in TV. I think the changes in technology, the fact that um, the same year the flip camera came out, cell phones replaced them by just having a built-in camera. I mean, that you could shoot a whole movie on a 1080. My, the first show I worked on, we didn't have 1080 cameras. You know, we were shooting in 720. <laughs> so my cell phone's better than the first cameras we because <laughs> it, that's out there. Because uh, editing software is cheap. Um, yes, it's easy to make really high quality stuff. Distribution is easy, and I think we need. Uh, we live in a unique time period where we can take advantage of that. Will that always be there? Who knows. Let's take advantage of it now because I think eventually your big names are going to want to find a way to lock that down, monopolize it, and become the one go-to source.
0: You know, and that, that's something that I wanted to uh, ask. Actually, was you know, how do we, you know, as a entrepreneurial audience slash producing audience, how do we go about producing better media, you know, given the limited budgets that we're all operating on, you know, is there some way to approach a network, or is it even an idea to approach a network, or should we just keep doing what we're doing and. Let everybody else catch up with us as we go.
1: I really think alternate media, the internet especially, is the way for us to go. I don't think um, approaching networks when you know you you'd be amazed how many production or show ideas are pitched to networks daily. Um, I work in development, so I I get pitches from people that want to have us then pitch them to networks, and I get stacks and stacks and you know just. Stacks and stacks. And <laughs> and and just and then I'm pitching those to networks, and I've got folder upon folder, and that's just one production company, one, per, one development executive, one production company, and there's hundreds of them. So um, I don't think we should count on such an important task of getting information out there to happen via the three or four networks that may or may not be interested in that show at that time because it, it's all about the flavor of the month. I think what's important is we need to start using the Internet and need to start creating... Quality programming on here, and if it's done well, um, you'll get viewers. I mean, some of the YouTube channels that people watch are weird topics, but they're done well, so
2: people are interested. Yeah, there's a. I, there's I, I, there's there's there. there, oh, I was going to say, John, there's another aspect to that I think that's interesting is that what we're seeing in alternative media is that the quality of content. I think, usually trumps quality of production um, in terms of holding people's interest. If you have good uh, you have good information and you have something that's interesting, um, the production doesn't have to be flawless. Um, it's really nice when it is, and it's nice to watch a, a polished production, and after you sit and do it, you have a whole new appreciation for it, but I think for people who think, wow, you know, that's... This looks fantastic. There's no way I could ever do something that looks as good as that. So, you know, give it a try. A few days ago, I shot some f- stunning footage, uh, stunning macro footage of leafcutter ants with an iPhone in the jungle. So no. I mean, uh, I mean, you can the you, right? just give it, give it, give it a try. It's, it's not, uh, it's not something to be intimidated by.
0: No, it's definitely not. You know, and you know when I talk to you know, spoke to Mike Clarkson and, and, you know, he actually agreed to be on the show, I, I about fell over just because, you know, it was like for me all over again talking to you for the first time, you know, I mean, I'm nobody. You know, I'm just some guy that, you know, decided to put together a few people and, you know, take a shot at it. And, hey, look, it works. <laughs> so once again, Mike, thanks for being on. I really appreciate your insights uh, into the um television side of things, and well, I mean,
1: uh, um, it's an important topic. I think uh, if serious, dedicated hobbyists like yourself get involved at the early stages now and start making these kinds of programs, um, we have a shot at changing more opinions this way than um, a lot of other ways people have tried. You know, herp shows are great for outreach for her clubs, but honestly, you have to be that interested in it. You have to be the person that's interested enough in reptiles to go to the reptile show at the first place. Something on the internet where it's easy to click on. Um, you're going to have a broader audience, and I think, uh, you know, like Ray was saying, uh, it is really content rather than production-driven, which is great, and it makes sense. I mean, it, it's kind of, the internet's more of an encyclopedia format than a novel series. You know, television will be your series. You have to watch an episode every day to hopefully see something you're interested in rather than just, oh, that's exactly what I want. I'll watch that short piece, and... Uh, so I think uh, Ray's got a great point there and I, I think that's why um, nonfiction seems to do so much better on the internet than it does on traditional network. Is the kind of people watching it want information. For
0: sure. Very and
1: definitely. brevity. And brevity. I mean, we're the ADD culture now. Um, so short, informative bits that they can just take home and absorb does great.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, brevity is definitely the choice of t- the Definitely flavor of the flavor of the month is how you said it. I think before. So is there any uh,
2: four-hour video? It's just a bad idea. What's that? So a four-hour video.
0: (laughs) Probably was, but you know that's okay.
1: All the cool people will like it. (laughs) (laughs) I am so lost on this Q and A thing. By the way, if anyone's asking me questions, I'm sorry. Um, no worries.
0: We're we're uh, I kind of messed that up myself here. Uh, let's see. We have Wally Kern says, "Hey folks, we're excited to be listening." So hello to Wally. And then uh, Zeus, my red tail boa, is loving the show. That was from Corey. Uh, Wally also said, uh, "Oh, for a question for Christine, actually, uh, do Sambo's need to brumate, uh Does Christine brumate her animals?"
3: I actually do not bromate any of my sand boas. They actually don't require a cooling period. But I do know certain breeders do put them through a cooling period before the breeding season.
0: Oh, okay. Very good answer. Thank you for that. And uh, once again, folks, I totally apologize. That's totally my fault, not paying attention to the Q&As and being on top of that stuff. I thought they would come up in the chat. That was totally my mistake. Thank you, to Chad, for fixing that error for me. Uh, I apologize James stop laughing at me I'll get this right the next time I swear
4: hey it's uh, all new media for everybody
0: Athena <laughs> um, oh Athena mm-hmm. shout it out to Ray Ray is awesome thanks for having him on thanks again for having me John and Ray uh, once again both of you gentlemen are so awesome for being on uh, Paula Cummings said hey everyone happy to be here nice to hear about the Samboas my daughter is very interested in them that's very cool Paula Okay, so that's the Q&As that we have up so far. Uh, did anyone have any questions at all for Ray or Mike Clarkson or Christine or the big hairy guy in the – I mean, Chad uh, or <laughs> Oh, man.
4: Type them in. Um, we had a shout-out from Sam Campbell on YouTube. He's watching this on YouTube.
3: Oh, hey, Sam, part
4: back, part back, back hello to you. Um this is a great media format I hope this really catches on because this makes it so interactive especially with guests like Ray and Mike I mean I I really hope because no other media format that I ever see in the Herp world right at the moment has any kind of interaction to it it's all taped um, post-production work and here this is all live if people can just you know John and I went through trouble trying to pick a time frame that was comfortable for East Coast, West Coast, North, South, uh, and and tried to get as many people to watch this live and interact with you guys and and any other guests that we're going to have on in the future. Um, I think it's a a, a great piece of media uh, format for the whole hobby. What's your thoughts on on something like this, Ray?
0: Um,
2: I think it's really interesting. I because I work in technology, my, my day job is, is is media. So seeing this kind of thing get embraced and you know figure it out and do, like like you mentioned, this is the first show. You're going to have occasional learning experiences along the way. I you know the the audience is going to be tolerant of that because it's good content. Um, so take advantage of it. It's uh it's interesting and you know what we're doing this year. You know, 18 months from now, there might be something different, or this will probably be better. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. Great. What about your thoughts, Mike?
1: I mean, I I like the format. I've uh, never seen something like this online, and it's fun. It's interactive. Um, I think it's uh, great because it's kind of a panel feel and uh, I could really see this. It would be great to do like, a Vivarium panel one time and then a, a Rear Fang Keepers panel, and I could really see this going a lot of places, um, which when you do a Rear Fang panel, you know, I expect to call for that one because that's... that's <laughs> that
0: <is. laughs> oh, for sure. You'll be on that one for sure, my friend. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, good. Is there, is there any other formats that you guys know of um, being in cinematography? Is there any other formats that you think that maybe... The hobby should exploit and, and try to put on other than the internet and um, mainstream media to three, you know, main components. Is there anything else that you know we can do to get our word out to make sure that people are informed?
1: You know, I, I think video short streaming video, um, YouTube is has done huge. Uh, growth in the last few years. We've been watching it really closely. A lot of major networks are like, well how does our show tie back to a website? How do you have that web integration? That's a big thing, web integration. And yeah. if you can find a show that has web integration, your chances of selling it are, are that much greater. Um, and I think you don't need a network to do that. We have an opportunity there. I haven't seen uh, great field herping shows yet um, or Comedic topical shows with reptiles. I'd love to see that. I mean, I know you have the Randall guy and the honey badger, and you have that guy that does the uh, the frog and the the uh, mantis shrimp, and he, you know, strange nature facts, and he uses the British accent, and and they're hilarious. I, I think uh, a great herp comedy. You have to you have to find other elements that make people want to watch. They're not gonna watch a show about a corn snake just because it's about a corn snake, but if it's hilarious and educational, or if it's interesting, if there's you still have to have that traditional TV while you're watching. What, not what are the stakes, but, you know, what's the catch? What's the draw? The animals are the draw for us, but for the general public who doesn't have the fascination with the animals, I think the next thing would be how do we add that into our passion.
4: Right, right. Hey, all we got to do is hand John a snake, and we could have a nice uh, uh, silent film with him.
0: <laughs> exactly. It would be
2: entertaining as hell, too. You know, it would be. <laughs> I can take you on a, tour, a herping tour inside my house. I was gonna
0: <laughs> say I was gonna see if uh, Ray wouldn't mind doing that one of these times. You know, just uh, turn on the camera and just walk around your house, Ray, and show up all the snakes that you you know encounter throughout your day. That'd be awesome. And I'm sorry, Ray. You no, know, I actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah well you know you got a good offer in uh, in Peru but hey uh, you have a standing invite so Mike was supposed to supposed to come down in about three weeks and he got uh, got called away but uh, we'll we'll go harping without you in the rain and I'll send you pictures of everything we find <laughs>
1: uh, Becca was giving me so much so much crap for that she's like you can't cancel, Ray. That's the trip. I'm sorry. <laughs> work <laughs> production.
2: No, you got you got to work when you got to work. Well, we're not we're not going anywhere. We'll be, you know, we'll be camped out here in the jungle. Although, uh, you know, you'll you'll be missing, you know, dinner overlooking the lake and you know, frogs as big as your feet waiting at the front door every night and geckos in your bed.
1: You know, I've seen your <laughs> blog and I've seen your exploits with what you can cook on a single burner stove. <laughs> the food's got uh, really had had some.
2: It, well, now the food is the food is um, uninspiring is probably the the best way to to put it. The, the the best food here if you have you know if you have Kenneth in the house um, you know that that's where your good food comes in. By the way, Kenneth says says hi to Mike and to John um, and to everybody out there. Kenneth
1: Frago's in the next room over and I would I would put him on camera with me, but uh, there's still people in there. I don't want to disturb them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually in an empty office right now because my office has other folks there right now
4: <laughs> so for anybody no, actually d- just anybody just now tuning in um, Ray is joining us live from Costa Rica so we were just talking about his single burner stove while he's down there in Costa Rica so anybody just turning tuning in he, he he's from Costa Rica he, he's joining us all the way from there so
0: and then Mike is—I uh, think Mike—you're in LA again. Is that right, or, or are you back in Texas somewhere and lost?
1: <laughs> no, I, I'm in Los Angeles for another two weeks, and then I'm off to Peru, and then probably somewhere in southern Africa after that. I'm not sure yet. Oh, nice. So I got cool. a little—I got a little bit of travel coming up. But right now, I'm at—you know—I'm still in LA. Okay.
0: Well, it's still pretty wild up there, though.
1: You know, <laughs> I've been oh, around. Yeah. <laughs> 80 degree <laughs> weather, really tough climate. Yeah, yeah. What's that talk about climate?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I live in Canada. I left California for Canada. I don't remember why. <laughs> 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 well, James, what else we got, sir? All
4: right. Well, um, actually, we got we got something really cool coming up, don't we, John? Something that we uh, talked about one night at what 11 o'clock. Um. It's a contest that that we thought would really inspire some new products for the Herp World. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen the shark tank. But if you have, you know what it's all about. Anyway, John and I were talking about doing our own little version of the reptile world and and his snake tank. And um, I'm going to see if this image comes up. I was having a hard time loading it all up but I'll go ahead and uh, load this image up anyway so anyway snake tank basically what we're looking for is we're looking for contestants um, to actually send us short videos of a product that they either created they actually are now marketing Um, it could be educational DVDs it could be um, some sort of incubation medium Food for crickets, geckos, whatever it may be, um, any product that you have, whether it's in distribution already, or you you actually have a prototype, and and what we want to do is we want to have our audience vote on these products. It's going we're gonna pick eight contestants, and um, narrow it down to one, and the winner's gonna receive a full one year. Um, advertising campaign with Reptile Living Room, and and that's going to include a 30-second a production commercial that you'll be able to own and put out on YouTube, put out on your Facebook, um, a- and promote your product. So, let me see if I can. John, you want to take over, and I'll see if I can find this uh, image real quick. Okay.
0: So basically, you're going to uh, submit a short video, uh, print sales pitch. And then uh, description of your new product, uh, basically right to room, uh dot com. Uh, we're not going to do any uh, animal promotions or anything like that. Let me see. I think uh, Jimmy got the snake tank page up. So. Yeah, here we go. It's not
4: the best image. We had Ray actually provided the snake up on top. It got cropped oh, yeah. off here. So, um, but Ray provided the image for the S of the snake. And then uh, Diego Ortiz out in Arizona, he actually provided the image down at the bottom. But um, reptilelivingroom.com is going to have all the information up there. Just go there, uh, contact us. You can send. I have any, all the information. You can send uh, all your videos, maybe description of the product, sales pitch, however you want. Bring your A-game, pitch it to us and we will uh, um, get back with you. So be in contact with reptilelivingroom.com, and it will be all up there. If you're friends with us um, personally on Facebook, of course, you'll see it once it's all up. And then um, Facebook uh, fan page, Reptile Living Room, will have all the links there as well. So I, I think it's going to be pretty good. What's your thoughts on it, Chad? I know you're our executive producer over there, but... What's your thoughts on this uh, little contest? Maybe you think it'll bring some interest into people really wanting to uh, produce new uh, content or products?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think it's a great idea. (laughs) That's it, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Sorry about that. Got interrupted. Um,
4: Mike, I'm I'm liking your hat and glasses there, bud.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Ray,
4: I guess Ray just saw it. Oh, That's hilarious.
2: Just, it just came the video. I'm on a little bit of a lag, so I, I'm late to that party. <laughs>
4: oh, okay. I'm going to blue box him now. Now everybody can see him. Yeah, there we go. That's all he sees. Everybody sees Mike with the glasses and the beard. Cool oh, stuff, Mike.
1: Cash, you know. Well, you know, I, I figured John had a hat and a beard, and I was feeling left out. You know, I just got scruffed, so, uh, you know, trying to join in. It works. I dig <laughs> it.
4: Great stuff. Hey, we got any questions, uh, uh, Q&A for anybody? Did we uh,
0: check? Didn't see any come up yet. Uh, D- no. uh, Danny Monica uh, likes it. Uh, says we're doing good stuff. Uh, Jorge Sierra uh, just tuned in. Uh, shouts out to everybody. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Uh, Corey Tres, says, What you guys are doing is awesome. We need this for the hobby. Uh, thank you, Corey. Appreciate that. And, yep, that was the last one. We covered Jorge. Yep, alright. That's everybody. I think I covered everybody. And we got one new chat message. Uh, oh, okay. And Chad's dog beat him up. Okay, got it.
1: <laughs> no worries. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so,
4: to tie to tie it all in, guys, on uh, cinematography and you know, herps. Do you think that um, I, I've noticed that some of the younger crowd, as Mike was saying, the short clips. Um, is there any special way? when they take the short clips, should they, you know, research any information and try to get it into that short clip when they're out there in a the field? I see a lot of short clips of rattlesnakes out in the field, corn snakes, rat snakes, people find corals. Um, and, and now that it's getting warmer up north, I'm starting to see out in Kentucky, eastern milks. Do you think there's a way that, you know, maybe we could actually increase the, the knowledge by those short clips or just by producing those short clips, it's going to bring the interest.
1: You know, I, I think they need to be uh, tied into something more. It's great when people share their Field Herping clips, but I think only their friends and family are watching that, we need to find a way um, to tie that in narration or otherwise to get a broader audience. I mean, I think it's great. You get friends and family to watch it and maybe take an interest, but you're not going to get that wide audience from the super short clips without some sort of extra catch. Um do I think they're beneficial? Yes. Do I think they're going to be that big uh, outreach we need? Uh, probably not. We need
2: something more than that. You know, one thing I think that's, uh, that's also really important is even if you're doing short clips and even if they're casual, do spend some time fact checking yourself and making sure that the information you're presenting is accurate. Because there's, um, you know, if you're producing information as a hobbyist, you, if you're publishing it, you have the same kind of obligation to your audience that a professional would have. Make sure that what you're putting out there is, uh, is 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 accurate. There's there's quite a lot of inaccurate information that still floats around the herp community, and if we're trying to trying to squash that, let's try to really squash that.
1: I I, I can't agree more with uh, Ray on that one. I mean, uh, we're we're always complaining about misinformation, but sometimes I'll be browsing my news feed. and um, I mean, granted, there's a lot of people on my newsfeed, but when you see misinformation coming from within, supposedly within the Herb community, you're going, well, if we can't get it right, how can we expect them to? <laughs>
4: <laughs> isn't, isn't that
3: the truth?
1: And, and,
4: and a lot of the information that we actually get in, on my newsfeed is all negativity. Oh, Yeah. Um, I made a bet with John. I was like, uh, let's spend a month and really see if we can just strictly post nothing but positive news. And, you know, it it got to the point where we were making a post every seven to ten days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty tough.
1: It's pretty tough. It's true with even traditional news. I mean, you know, if you have a positive news story, it's called fluff. If you have uh, eight people shot in the head, it's news. I mean, and it, it's it's tough because Facebook is almost personal news. That's what social net, uh, media really is all about is personal news. So it's tough It's tough to come up with positive stories, but when you're dealing with something that you want to promote like reptiles, you have to try and find a way. And, and for me, too, it's personally tough because you kind of, you know, you feel like a cheese ball, like, oh, wow, this is great. Yeah. yeah. It's easier to post deforestation is terrible which, you know I'm and I'm a culprit of posting all that negative news um, but you know there's still new species being discovered there's still good conservation um, but it, it is tough to be positive and news because then it feels like a fluff piece and, and it's true with all forms of news um, for some reason we people dwell on negative news
4: <laughs> well being being in uh, advertising and stuff we know that uh, negativity sells believe it or not I I went through with a lot of other advertisers and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, if your product's out there and you have 50 people that think it's great, but all of a sudden you get a handful of 10 that are negative, all of a sudden you explode on the views of your website and people are in the forefront of seeing it. It, It's amazing how society has run to that point, but that's pretty much where we're at. one good piece of, of of literature that actually comes out is Herp House Mac and John's the owner over there. Um, unbelievable content in that magazine. Um, <laughs> the first couple of issues I actually read in that magazine, it reminded me of the old Vivarium, and, and how that was structured, and it was all digital, and, and a lot of information, and, and really kept me, you know, in the digital realm. I was reading it on my phone, I could read it on my computer, so it was great. I I took it with me everywhere. I was sitting at the bus stop waiting for my kids and I was reading the article. So, um, that's one of the the better pieces that I've seen put out for information-wise.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Reptiles Magazine is what it is, um, but I definitely think it's a good beginner start. It's the PetSmart Petco version. It's good to see other publications that have great, solid information out there that aren't as much uh, pet filler because it has become the, you know, the... The, the I, ultimate I don't know.
4: advertiser.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's a lot of ads, and it is just a lot of, um, so you got a bearded dragon. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, and there's a place for that. I mean, everyone starts somewhere, and uh, yeah. a lot of people do start in Petco and Petmart, so I, I think there's definitely a place for that magazine still. It's just... It is the um, Amateur Keeper's Startup Guide. Because I can't say that in in the early days when I, you know, I wasn't inspired by their, shoot, what year was it, that they had the uh, Gray Band and Kingsnake article. And, uh, you know, there was one with Bob Clark's Granite Burmese Python on the front. And, you know, back when the the pages were black and white. And I can't say it didn't inspire me. I don't think it's not doing that as well today. But it's really an amateur magazine. It's become more and more of that, curtailed towards that. And it's good to see that. Um, there's other publications that are coming in kind of replacing where Vivarium left off. Because Philippe's Vivarium magazine was fantastic, but you know, there, there was a void.
4: <coughs> I still read it today. I read all the back issues. I, I think I'm missing maybe four or five, but I still go back and, and, and I, you know, the one I read the other day, Black Milksnakes, with uh, Alan Cardin. Uh, unbelievable articles, information-wise, even though some of it may be outdated information, and we've learned in the past 20 years that, you know, keeping these snakes this way wasn't the best care, and we had to tweak it a little bit. Is there any any um, media outlets that you guys would actually recommend um, for the more, you know, mid-level to advanced hobbyists?
2: You know, there's one, uh, one resource that I find, uh, at least in the Venom Interviews group, where people ask, Questions and they, it's a kind of a best-kept secret out there. But Google Google has a sister site or a, a different, uh, a parallel brand called Scholar.Google.com, and if you want to search for uh, academic articles on a subject, uh, you know, you want to search on, you know, crotalus atrox venom or do you want to search for information about how Russell's viper venom is used in a, a test for lupus, you can actually run searches like that and get the academic papers that those came from. That's, um, I'm surprised that that's not more known, but it's a fantastic resource that's out there.
4: Absolutely, Ray. And, and believe it or not, when I was writing the Honduran book, and now that I'm writing this next uh, milk snake book, I actually use Google Scholar for a lot of my articles and a lot of my content because it gives me the papers that I can refer to that gives me the information that I'm needed and you can actually minimize it to uh, very small demographic parts that you're actually trying to research so it it is it's a wonderful um, sister site for Google Um, the other one that Google comes out with and and I don't mean to promote Google but Google images so let's say you find an image on Facebook or it was sent to you an email, and you really want to find out who who had that image and and what the story is, true story is behind it, you can actually upload that image to Google Image, and it'll search everything that's relevant to that image. And um, it it helped me out a lot researching for the Honduran book to find out who owned certain images. Because you know over time, you just never knew.
1: Yeah, another one I love, as a resource, a little more academic, but you know, I find that uh, scientific papers are the best care sheets, especially for obscure species. Um, yes. Like my Atula, my vine snakes, and um, the other big thing I work with is the samophis. Um, you know, when, when my samophis mozambique first laid her eggs, I'm like, I don't know incubation temperatures. No one's bred them, but let's look at the seasonal time they lay and what the temperatures are there. JSTOR, um, It's just the letter J and then S T O R. Um, used to be an online resource where you had to buy the papers, but now they have something called the JSTOR Shelf. If you sign up, it's free. You could put, I, I, I want to say, three or four articles on your shelf and read them, and then return them like a library, and it doesn't cost you anything. So that's another great resource, now that they have the JSTOR Shelf, to actually read and take in this information. Um Not Google Scholar, not the great free resource, but it is nice because you can kind of rent from this academic library where before you had to pay for access or have university access.
4: Well, that's great to know, uh, Mike, because actually when you do the Google Scholar, a lot of times they send you to JSTOR.
0: JSTOR,
4: yeah. Yeah,
1: It's it's JSTOR.org, and I want to say it's called Shelf, or um, I'll look up the actual name, but it's a great... It, it's only been the last few months since they had that, and it's really kind of improved that site for me, for my use. That and another one I love that I, I send people to a lot is actually the IUCN Red Redlist uh, website. and yep. I, uh, Because it actually has range maps and links that can send you in directions, and then you can click on those links, and it'll send you a Reptile database, and you'll eventually find a key if you just keep clicking enough links. Um That's another, IUCN Red List is just a a great site for uh, if you want to look up a species and try to get some background on it.
4: What about you, John? uh, You write articles, you write a ton of content. Uh, (coughs) What's one of your favorites? I see you post a couple of them online.
0: Yeah, Google Scholar, um, my personal library, (laughs) Uh, the archives that I have. People have
4: those? People have those still?
0: Yeah, yeah, some people still have those. I have uh, old Clobber books and uh, some uh, James Tennell book over there, and uh, uh, yeah, a bunch of stuff. (laughs) Uh, Here's the uh, IUCN Red List. I don't know if uh, this is going to work. Let's see if it does. That uh, Mike was talking about. This is the IUCN Red List um, website. IUCNRedList.org, RedList.org? And uh, like you're saying, they have range maps and all kinds of stuff, killer stuff over here. Uh, that it's very good resource. That's one of the ones that I use, that I'm currently using for uh, the Euromastic's book is the IUCN Red List for sure. And then, uh, but that JSTOR one I'm very interested in because that, uh, like uh, James was saying, a lot of the times we get referred to JSTOR, but it's like you know you got to pay 35 bucks or whatever for for the uh, article to get it, and it's
1: like, well, that ain't gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, they're not all free, but a lot of them are. Most of the ones that are in digital copy, you can put to your shelf and read them um, for a temporary period at no charge, and it's it's great. It really, uh, you know, when you for me when I'm, I'm tinkering and researching a new species and deciding how I'm gonna set it up and how I'm gonna acclimate it, um, or just general curiosity because they go on tangents. If you can't tell, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I love that they added that. It really has made me. Uh, Use that site a lot more. Than, well, 35 bucks? Nope. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, as far as uh, cinematography and archiving and uh, older footage and stuff like that, is anyone uh, preserving the archives of the older, like, uh, you know, the Miami uh film footage and stuff like that that's still around? Is anyone doing any conservation with that old footage or any of the old footage that
1: we have? You know, that's a great question. I I will say it's funny. Um, I did a show called uh, Shark Week's 25 Best Bites, and it was like the 25 best clips ever shown on Shark Week. Um, Discovery didn't have anything more than, like, five years old on hand. Like, all the... And it's been going on for 25 years. They didn't, like, they're like, oh, we could look for it. So um, who knows if even that's been archived. So something even more obscure? Um, I'd be surprised if it were, you know. I, I've started collecting scientific papers just for that, that reason. Um, I'm collecting all the old clobber papers, because I'm like, you know, I don't know if anyone's really archiving this. I will, um, but like you're saying, Miami Serpentarium, I would be surprised if it actually was being archived. Unless a university's picked that up as a project, probably not.
2: I actually, <laughs> I actually, about five months ago, got to see some 50-year-old footage from Miami Serpentarium. Oh, really? um, and it was, and it was in what, where a lot of this old footage probably is, is in people's private collections. And yeah. it, this had been converted to DVD. Yeah, I, I wish I had access, to it, but it was in somebody's personal library. Uh, you know, a picture of someone who is now retired when he was a teenager working with Bill, and it was just to see that ancient footage is just. You know, it was mind-boggling to see this little piece of history. Uh, you know, in our terms now, 50 years is a long time, but to see a video of that was, you know, it, the uh, the actual clip in question was a uh, a very large uh, croc that had gotten out of its enclosure, and what looked like an all-day project to try to get it back into its enclosure, and all of the different things that they had tried to get this, God, this croc must have been I don't know five or six meters long. It was just just this enormous animal. Um, but there's video that, that exists, uh, and there probably is a good amount of footage like that that's in people's private collections, and I hope that it's getting preserved, and, and oh. maybe it's, someday it'll get organized, and that would be, it, it was just phenomenal to see.
0: No kidding. Wow.
4: wow. I haven't seen any old footage on, on the internet. You know how sometimes you kind of scroll through, and, and people will post stuff, I haven't seen any old uh, uh, reptile herp related footages. Uh, that's kind of kind of weird that um, sh- they wouldn't even have ten years back of shark footage. I mean, as popular as Shark Week's been, you would think they would actually keep it.
1: Yeah, and they do keep some, but not not in a, a uh, archive that they knew about. Maybe it's turnover. Who knows? But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. It's scary to have these kinds of archives that we'd like to keep for generations in private hands because when someone passes away and they see these cassette tapes that say Miami Serpentarium, what are the chances that's actually going to be preserved properly and more likely just tossed out as junk? You know, I know uh, that, that's not the kind of thing you're going to yard sale and, and more than likely unless the uh, family's uh, herpetologist, that's not the kind of thing they're going to keep. So, uh, you know, that, that's actually, there you go, there's a great project someone needs to get on but there's so many of those, where do you start?
4: John, you got all the time in the world, man. Why don't you start... Uh, um... <laughs> yeah,
0: let me get right on that. <laughs> start uh, flying micro around to start archiving all the uh, Miami-Dade Serpentarium private footage you can find. <laughs> well, let's see. Oh, uh, here we go. Jorge Sierra says there's an FB uh, group which is dedicated to the Serpentarium and Bill Haas himself.
4: Yeah. Um, John Ziegle, I think, is the owner of those groups.
0: Is he? I... Okay. Yeah. So maybe that's the place we can start, you know, talking about maybe archive, you know, finding those archives and you know, um, you know, seeing if the archives even exist or if we can get in touch with them to put, you know, something together. Yeah.
4: All righty, guys. Well, uh, we have any other questions and answers there, John?
0: Um, I'm looking through the questions and answers, and nothing so far. Uh, that was the last thing that Jorge and, uh, had provided was, um, you know, the FB group. And uh, thanks for everyone uh, for mentioning the different. Uh, thanks to everyone for mentioning the different websites uh, they like for research. They, uh, that's great info. I posted those on the um, event page. So
4: you've been posting the links, Chad.
0: Yes. Yeah.
4: Great, great. And I like a man. Uh, what's that?
1: And it is called JSTOR Shelf. Just I, I just checked it. It's JSTOR Shelf. You have to have a login. But that, that new service is called My Store. Under that tab, it's Shelf. Awesome.
4: Great. Thanks, Mike. I'll have to check that out as soon as we get off air here.
1: Yeah, and, for sure. Me
4: too. And talk about getting off air. <laughs> um, I would like personally thank Mike and Ray for being on the show, and Christine. Um, I thank you guys so much. You you brought so much to the table tonight, and it was a a topic that I was really interested in and kind of having an outlook on uh, cinematography from the old days to now to to what we may see in the future. Um, Christine, great Sam Boas. I actually learned something tonight, and uh, I kind of think that I know a lot in the Kluber world, but there's always something that shocks me.
3: Thank you
0: for having me. Definitely a pleasure, Christine. I really like that paradox boa too. That was really nice. I like that species
3: that yeah. you I just wish I could have shown you more of them, but they're either gravid or they're all in shed.
0: Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> well,
4: it's that, yeah, yeah. that time of year. It's that time of year.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny you bring up sand boas. I, I didn't know you'd be on here. And, and right before I got on, I text my wife can I get rid of the uh, Jayakari, the uh, Arabian Samboa? And she's texting me back, no, with all caps, and then like a page of exclamation marks. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, are you serious? Because I really want to get a Maupel on, and I I hear this might come in soon, so I I want the cage space. And she goes, you are not getting rid of googly eyes. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my Samboa's staying. (laughs) Awesome. Here's one for
0: the (laughs) Samboa.
1: (laughs) <laughs> he's not going anywhere, not with that uh, many <clears throat> <part. laughs> I mean, I have to admit he's, she has a point he's kind of a cute snake, people who are scared of snakes you put that in their hands and they're not scared he's, he's pretty Yeah, cute.
0: you can't be scared of Sambo's. they're just, they're as cool snake.
1: Yeah, exactly
4: Alright, John, so we have anything else to wrap up the show?
0: Uh, no, sir Not that I'm aware of uh, Just checking chat one last time uh, checking Q&As one last time. I do want
4: to apologize, though, and I guess we had a problem with our Facebook app. People weren't able to view it on Facebook. I will look into that app and the technology that was supposed to be working. Um, hopefully we'll get it ready for next Thursday. Um, I- I'm very sorry about that, but you could have viewed us on Google+, YouTube, um,
0: ReptileLivingRoom.com well. was live. Uh, it does broadcast live right there from uh, ReptileLiving.com as well.
4: So there we go. There we go. Um, next week's show, John. Yes,
0: sir. What's our uh, topic? We're gonna do the uh, women in her Team. Is that correct?
4: Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. Okay. And uh, basically, what that is, uh, we're gonna bring in the uh, females in the industry that uh, are interested in coming on board. We have. Uh, I believe Heather Wong is confirmed. And who else do we have confirmed so far?
4: That's all we have definitely confirmed. We have okay. a couple more actually in the works. I'm just waiting on uh, they wanted to watch the show and see what kind of content we were putting on before they agreed to come on the show. Very cool.
1: So, um, oh, man, you had me on? Oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> 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 I just yeah, really like recover now. from it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs>
0: And when, uh, once again, we like to thank uh, Ray Morgan uh, from the Venom Interviews. Ray, how is the editing going on that? I know I keep harassing you every time I talk to you, but I have to. I
2: I know. Well, one of the the, the difficult parts about doing something for the first time is you, you're really bad at predicting how long it's going to take. And then exactly. you write off a project, the magnitude of this, and, and your estimates are so wildly off that it becomes a running joke. But... Um, the uh, the last section of the film is the one, the collection of five chapters that deals with safety. Uh, right. One of those chapters is done, done, and I'm finishing pieces of the other chapters um, frequently. I just uh, finished a, another chapter day before yesterday on uh, fasciotomy, and then I've got uh, a, a bunch more going uh, that are getting, you know, they're, they're falling like dominoes now. So I'm hoping that uh, by sometime, you know, late summer or early fall, we have a, a real film to look at. Awesome.
0: Sounds awesome. So, Mike, are you working on anything uh, reptile-related right now, or are you just going around playing around with the cameras and stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, in this business, I can't announce anything till it's done. Um, I've oh, got three different reptile-centric shows in development, um, some with some promising stuff, and I have some shows cool. taking me to um, some cool locations, uh, animal-related but not reptile-related, so I'm looking forward to uh, those because... Of course, field herping and tons of photos from Peru. And uh, you know, on the hobby side, I've got a uh, plenty of eggs right now, and and Jordan and I are talking about the next Raka thing. So there's stuff going on, but unfortunately, the fun stuff I can't talk about. <laughs>
0: okay. All right, and uh, now Raka, let's give him a shout out. Where where can we find out about Raka? Uh,
1: you go on to Facebook. Um, if you have a Facebook account, that's a silly question anymore. And <laughs> you type in a. Uh, Reptile and amphibian charity auctions. Okay, awesome. And uh, there's also uh, RACA.net, R-A-A-C-A.net, and uh, that has information about the next upcoming events. And and we have something in the works we just haven't uh, announced it yet because, like I said, this is a busy season for. They're still getting calls uh, for everyone around here.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: So yeah, Rackin.net and Facebook are the two sources for that. Okay, very cool. All and right, Chad, so,
4: you, Chad, you're gonna get those up on the uh, event page for us.
0: Absolutely. Even though right. cost me a lot of money. Spent <laughs> <laughs> way too much on there. What'd you win? Uh, a couple leopard geckos.
1: Um, awesome. Yeah,
0: in the first one. I mean.
4: And a stick on, and a stick on goatee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, you know, the auctions are a lot of fun, um, but sometimes you win stuff and you're like, why did I do that? Um, I think the best was my buddy Hussam. Uh, he won the dog gift certificate, and he doesn't have room for another dog, so now he has like a $1,000 to dogs, and he has no room for it. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're fun. Um, sometimes you pay more than you should have. Sometimes it's way cheaper, but, you know, it's, it's a good rally grassroots behind the cost.
0: Definitely, definitely. And uh, Ray, we can find you at the uh,
2: Venom Interviews group uh, on Facebook. Yeah, if you go to Facebook and search the Venom Interviews, you'll find uh, two, uh, two results. One is the Venom Interviews group, which is about 3,000 people. Um, it's a very active, very interesting group. The other one is the Venom Interviews page, where I'll occasionally post some interesting stories or updates on the progress of the film. Uh, but the, really, the group is where all the action happens.
0: Awesome. Very cool. And James, where are we finding you at?
4: Where are you gonna find me at? <laughs> well you can find me at cold-blooded publishing. you can find me at reptile living room. you can find me at tremendous tricolours. You can you can probably find me uh, very easily on uh, Facebook, Google+. Plus. Uh, it's not hard to find my ugly mug floating around <laughs> somewhere.
0: Now what do we got hatched out this week anything? Or uh, what's laying this week, I
4: should say. No hatches. Actually, um, pretty surprising. Uh, It's only May 1st, but uh, I should have snakes hatching in about 30 days. I got a little more than 125 eggs on the ground, and this is like the earliest part of breeding season. So for the next four to five, six weeks, I should have two, three females a day lay. So it's going to be pretty busy around here and, uh, of course, working with the show and stuff. But uh, I'm pretty excited. i got some really cool projects coming up, coming up this year. Um, I'm breeding some Yucatan milk snakes. Um, not many in the hobby. Um, Lampropeltis, Triangle, and Blanchardi. Not many in the hobby working with them. Um, so it, it's definitely going to be a decent year for me, hopefully, if everything goes well. So I'm pretty excited about this year.
0: Awesome, very cool. So, uh, Ray, any uh, strange encounters
2: uh, on after you moved out there for your? Uh oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the time. I've, uh, about every week, I discover another species of lizard that I'm sharing the house with. Um, so we've had um, uh, three kinds of geckos. Uh, occasionally, in the earlier today, I showered with one. We find them in the dishes. Uh, <laughs> Probably we shouldn't no, tell guess. that to people. Who are, yeah, probably shouldn't tell that. Sorry, sorry, Dan. Sorry, Apple. Uh, we have uh, uh, yeah, we have lizards in our dishes. Um, and then out and around, some of the the snakes I see pretty regularly are things like Spilodes, the big tiger rat snakes. Um, caught a boa constrictor a few weeks ago. Uh, parrot snakes are common. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, you, big vine snakes are, are pretty common here, <laughs> and uh, we have terciopellas, or the um, Bothrops Asper, the big Fertilances. Yeah. We find those with some regularity. They're um, of the big three vipers here that people have to worry about. It's the only one that we have in my area, uh, but they are common and they're famously inhospitable. So those are always fun to see as long as you don't get too attached. Yeah, those things are wild. My- hey, Ray, did I ever tell you the time uh, Rebecca almost
1: uh, picked one up? Oh, <laughs> no. We were, we were on our honeymoon, and we're hiking up this trail. Um, they had Gulf of Dulce dart frogs on the top of this waterfall. They're like the moss with the rock, and there wasn't a whole lot of it. Um, but uh, one of the guys there knew where it was at, so he showed us in my broken Spanish, his broken Spanish. We were following along. I stepped over a baby, uh, Fertilance, apparently he stepped over and she goes you guys missed the snake look and starts bending over and like reaching down she goes is it a vermilion boa because she knew that's something i'd be really excited to see um, well you know, i was all 3 days married and almost ended up widowed like that i was like wow i didn't think that would happen so fast um
2: well by figures sorry
1: yeah it was almost a very brief honeymoon um which I don't know. She she was she was a little bitter the whole time because I tried to explain to her that hey, the animals are out at night and you're still awake during the day, so can we put that off so I can herp? And uh, yeah,
2: really
1: I, I thought she was cool with it till we got home, and she's like, yeah, the whole time. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> All right, gents, well. Alrighty, gents,
0: we got to wrap this up. I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to seeing uh, everybody joining us again in the future, hopefully. Mike, enjoy your your, uh, round trips. uh, Hopefully, Uh, take lots of pictures, and we'll see you soon.
1: Sounds great. Thanks again, Ray. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Thanks a
2: lot, guys.
3: Thank you.
1: Thanks, everyone.